Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to a regular look at the legal system and you? A special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. When a person becomes 18 years old in Missouri, there's a lot of things that change for them, and they might not realize it. This program is especially important to young people approaching that age and those who've gotten there. And we have two members of the Missouri Bar's Young Lawyers Section Council to explore these changes with us. Danielle Drake does general civil litigation and handles cases in real estate, family and business law and speeding tickets for McDormand and Parks LLC at the Lake of the Ozarks. She's a fourth generation resident of the Lake area, which means her family has been around for most of the lake's history. Our other guest is Deshaun Kaysen, an assistant city councilor for the city of St. Louis. He works mostly on employment and tort matters, but his biggest passion within the law includes education, children's rights, and information law. Welcome to our program. Thank you. Turning 18 changes a lot of things about life. Uh, As my son remarked a few minutes ago when I told him about this podcast, when you're 18, you can go to jail for a lot of stuff, but it's more than that. So can we run through a short list of some of the issues that come with being 18, and then we'll kind of explore them later? When you turn 18, I think there there are a handful of things that you have to consider because now you're legally an adult. You have to consider your, your relationship with driving, your relationship, if any, with alcohol, how you'll handle police encounters, how you'll use credit and interact with the financial systems in your state. Danielle, are there other areas in addition to those? Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, kind of goes back to that Spider-Man phrase of with great power comes great responsibility. And although you don't think of yourself being powerful necessarily at 18, you do have a responsibility. And as Deshaun mentioned, your relationship with people matters a lot more. Your relationship with people in terms of your employers, your landlords, you can enter into contracts legally and they will be enforced and can be enforced. You can get married. You can, You have to vote. You should vote. You don't have to, I guess. I wish you had to. Um, you should vote. Um, you need to register for vote, voting. And it's just also coming with that merit of you're now leaving the home and there's no longer someone telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing it's now you coming out into the world saying these are the things that matter to me such as registering for voting getting married doing those things that we consider being an adult taking that milestone moment doesn't seem i know when i turned 18 i had just graduated high school and i was going into college and i still very much felt like a kid in so many aspects but it does have responsibility and you have to start thinking and paying attention to the world around you Maybe later in the program, toward the end, we can also talk about what happens to parents of children who turn 18. Do they immediately cease to have any responsibility or what the relationship changes uh, when when a kid gets to be 18? But we can talk about that later on. When I was 18, my biggest concern was I had to register for the draft. I don't even know if you have to register for the draft anymore. But uh, there's an awful lot of other things. Is, Is the Selective Service registration still out there anywhere? Does anybody have to register for the draft? To my understanding, yes, selective service is still a requirement. It is something that does still just apply to men. It doesn't apply to women. Mm -hmm. That's something that a lot of people don't realize that Mm -hmm. whether or not we agree with it or not, um, there have been Supreme Court cases that have come down and kind of weighed in on that recently in different states. But it is still just a requirement federally for, I'm going to say men, boys, men rather than women. Is that responsibility on you to go to an office somewhere or go online somewhere and sign up? Or is there an opportunity like when you renew your driver's license or your even non-driver's you know, identification card to take care of that? 
Sure. There are two ways to register for selective service. So the law is that all men between the ages of 18 and 25 have to register within 30 days of their 18th birthday. Uh, you can do that online or you can do that with a physical form at your local post office. But it must occur within 30 days of your 18th birthday. Some of the consequences of not signing up for selective service is when you apply for certain government programs, such as student loans, uh, they will ask you if, if you've registered for selective service. Um, and so there are some consequences to not doing that. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legalese. For most of our history, the right to vote began when an individual became 21 years old, an age when for centuries English and American law considered the point when we become adults with the mental capacity to make contracts. In World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt noted the disconnect. We were drafting and asking young men to serve in a major war years before they were eligible to vote. He urged that the age be lowered to 18, the age when young men were being drafted. In 1952, General Dwight Eisenhower, who had commanded our troops in Europe in World War II, was elected president. Two years later, Eisenhower advocated a change in the voting age to 18, noting that young people were asked to serve and young men were drafted to fight before they were full citizens empowered with the right to vote. But despite the urging of these two great presidents, Roosevelt, a Democrat, and Eisenhower, a Republican, nothing happened until the late 1960s after both men had passed. What happened? Enter the Vietnam War, which became deeply unpopular in the late 1960s, unlike World War II, which enjoyed widespread support. During the late 1960s, demonstrations against America's long and costly involvement in the Vietnam War began to bring to Congress's attention the disconnect, or hypocrisy, if you will, of drafting 18-year-olds while denying them the right to vote. American service members under the age of 24 accounted for half of all those killed in action during the Vietnam War, including many as young as 18. In 1969, at least 60 resolutions to lower the minimum voting age were introduced, but ignored in Congress. In 1970, Congress finally passed a bill extending the Voting Rights Act of 1865 and included a provision lowering the minimum voting age to 18 in all federal, state, and local elections. When President Richard Nixon signed the bill, he attached a signing statement with his opinion that the voting age provision was unconstitutional. Although I strongly favor the 18-year-old vote, President Nixon said, I believe, along with most of the nation's leading constitutional scholars, that Congress has no power to enact it by simple statute, but rather it requires a constitutional amendment. A year later, in Oregon versus Mitchell, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 to four decision that Congress had the power to regulate the minimum age in federal elections, but not in state and local elections. Under the Constitution, a divided court held only the states have the right to set voter qualifications in state elections. The court's split ruling meant that while 18 to 20-year-olds would be eligible to vote for president, vice president, and Congress, they could not vote for state or local officials who were up for election on the ballot at the same time unless their states allowed 18 to 20-year-olds to vote, which none did. A substantial number of states began to demand a constitutional amendment 
to set a uniform national voting age of 18 for all elections in all states. Both houses of Congress in March of 1971 overwhelmingly passed a resolution for a constitutional amendment to lower the voting age to 18 for all elections. A little more than two months later, 38 states, the necessary three-fourths of the states, ratified the amendment. President Nixon certified on July 5, 1971, that the proposal had been adopted and was the 26th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, setting a speed record for adoption of constitutional amendments. In signing the certification, Nixon said, The reason I believe that your generation, the 11 million new voters, will do so much for America at home, you will infuse into this nation some idealism, some courage, some stamina, some high moral purpose that this country always needs. Has it made a difference? Political scientists and pundits thought it would, but data from the first few decades did not bear that out. Young voters, voting for the first time in 1972, did not change the result that favored President Nixon's landslide re-election. Young voters continued to lag the voting percentages of older adults for nearly all of the elections since then. Perhaps younger voters, despite their image to the contrary, were voting in similar ways to their parents. Perhaps they did not feel urgency or involvement on a large scale to side with one group of partisans or the other. Experts who study brains tell us that the human brain is not fully developed until about age 25 for males and perhaps a bit younger for women. This has influenced the thinking of judges and some legislators about punishment for crimes, particularly the death penalty. But whether young brains are fully developed, we ask young people to be responsible adults to serve their country and all of that. The Vietnam War was a particular concern to that generation because so many of the draft-eligible young men did not believe the war was justified or winnable, and they were for various reasons unwilling to put their lives on the line for that cause. That opinion, however, was not universally held among this group, as many young men volunteered to serve in the military during Vietnam. But it was much more of a factor than in previous wars. Members of Congress took note. Many of these draftees were not old enough to vote, but their parents and other relatives and friends were voters. While members of Congress and the legislatures of the required number of states passed the amendment, and overwhelmingly, it remained unclear for some years as to whether younger voters were distinctly different from those of their parents' generations. Until, that is, until the present time. The 2022 election in many states appears to have been different. Issues that seem to matter to young voters include climate change, reproductive rights, and the future of democracy, to name a few that have been in the news, depending on whose channel you watched. Without going into the explanations offered by partisans about the results of the 2022 midterm elections, a few statistics tell a story worth considering. The voting age population, age 18 to 24, constitutes about 9% of the total voting age population as of 2020, the latest year for which data are available. The pundits, those commentators who try to explain how we voters feel and how to predict how we're going to vote, mostly predicted a wave election where the party in the minority would be swept into the majority in both houses of Congress. In the House, some of the experts predicted a margin of 20 seats or more. In the Senate, a switch of a few seats would shift control to the out party. What happened? There was no wave. 
but the party with the White House kept control of the Senate but lost control of the House by only a few votes, a result not typical of midterm elections that often do serious damage to the party that occupies the White House. One explanation is that young voters actually did show up. The latest data available at this point show a trend or two in that direction. In the midterm elections, 27% of young people ages 18 to 29 turned out, the second highest youth voter turnout in almost three decades. These young people probably helped decide some of the close races. In a group of nine electorally competitive states for which exit polling data are available, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the aggregate youth voter turnout was 31%. The early vote in states that allow early voting told a more dramatic story where the data are available. In Michigan, the early youth vote was up 207% from 2018. In Michigan, it was up 318%, and in Wisconsin, up 360% from 2018. So, old pundits can take heart. The change they saw coming 51 years ago, when the voting age was lowered to 18, appears to have happened. Most of them have gone to their final reward. But their margins of error live on. This is Mike Wolf, an older voter, fervently hoping that youth is not wasted on the young. Legalese. Let's talk about drinking. That seems to be a popular subject. You know, when I, I grew up in Illinois, and one time we had a law that said girls at the age of 18 could buy beer, but boys had to wait until they were 21. Eight, being 18 doesn't let you buy beer, and Missouri doesn't. No, it doesn't. You, you have to be 29 years of age to purchase alcohol in the state of Missouri. Now, possession and consumption, there are some different rules around that. So, for example, uh, if you're under the age of, of 21 and you're in your home with your parents, then it's not prohibited by Missouri law for your parents to provide you with alcohol in a reasonable way. When I use the word reasonable here, I'm not using it as a legal term of art. I'm just using it as a general saying the word reasonable, whereas other people can't supply alcohol to a minor in any capacity. If you're under the age of 21, you can sell alcohol at like a gas station or somewhere that sells prepackaged liquor where it will be consumed off-site, uh, but you can't like work at a bar and make drinks. You can run the drinks to the table. Something I've seen, and so I served for two, two years as a municipal prosecutor in the city of St. Louis, and so I saw a lot of minor possession cases and different alcohol cases related to minors, uh, usually around those large events like Mardi Gras, things like that, uh, St. Patrick's Day in Seward in St. Louis, and there was a lot of minor possession tickets given out. The standard to be a minor in possession is that you either, even if you look intoxicated, you're subject to the to the citation. Uh, if you're actually intoxicated, as in your BAC is over 0.02, then you can be cited as a minor in possession of alcohol. I know that, for example, like going off to college, and the game that you mentioned of the milestone turning 18, typically, you know, going off to college and, and, and starting that, that party culture, for lack of better words, uh, is something that a lot of 18-year-olds, uh, I think, look forward to. Um, and that's usually their first interaction with alcohol, and they go to these college campuses and, and receive these minor possession tickets. 
And while in the moment they might, that may not seem like a big deal, but as you get older and the further you go, you'll have to report those kind of things. And so that's something to be mindful of is you know, short-term gain uh, versus long-term consequence. So basically, if you're convicted of a minor in possession, that's something that could, you know, impact your future college or graduate applications, employment opportunities, potentially. So that's a great way to put it, the the short term gain of maybe fitting in at the party versus the long term consequences of that. Also talking about uh, drinking underage, we've seen a lot of really just heartbreaking stories. There's even one that took place here in Missouri involving like excessive alcohol use. And so if you are, you know, 21 or also under the age of 21, but you're providing alcohol to a friend, is that illegal? Sure, you're absolutely spot on with that inclination. It is illegal. It's very illegal to do so. Of course, don't look favorably on that, and especially if, you know, you provide to a minor and that minor goes on to maybe, you know, commit another act, you know, get in an accident or hurt or injure someone, then potentially from a civil liability perspective that the person that furnished the alcohol could be brought into, you know, into a lawsuit. But criminally can also be charged for providing alcohol to a minor. Because again, if, if you're not a parent of a child and that consumption or is not occurring within the home, then there's potentially a law that's being violated. Carrying on this thread of alcohol use when under the legal age, we've talked about it currently in settings where you're not in a vehicle. I take it that driving while intoxicated applies the same or even more so to those who are not even of legal age to drink. Is that correct? That, that is correct, Sarah. So drinking and driving, regardless of your age, is, is illegal. And Missouri State doesn't have an open container law. And what that just means is that if you're a passenger in a vehicle, uh, you may be allowed to consume alcohol. The driver can never drink. But again, like you said, for when you're under the age of 21, regardless if you're a passenger or not, you're not legally allowed to possess or you know, consume alcohol in the state of Missouri. So that's a risk that young folks take. So scenario here, you just turned 18, you're maybe catching a ride to a party with some friends, they have open containers in the vehicle, you're not partaking, does that put you in hot water still if you get pulled over? Potentially, yes. I like this adage that we are some of the five people we spend the most time with. If you're in a car and there are five people in that vehicle and four of them are consuming alcohol and get pulled over, the logical inference is that maybe you're consuming alcohol as well. And so maybe not be in that situation to begin with, but also just be mindful of who you're spending time with. And Danielle, being at the lake, is there such a thing as boating while intoxicated? Excellent question, Farah. And I think a lot of people sometimes get surprised to know that, yes, in fact, you're held to the same standard as when you're in a car. It's the same thing in a boat or in a car. The driver is not to consume alcohol. So you can get a pontoon boat with your friends and you can have a cooler and they can all be drinking, sure. But you better be sure that you are responsible for the lives of everyone in that boat at that time. And that's kind of that standard and that responsibility that we kind of go back to, which is, Sure, you can go out and now you can rent this boat and you can go out or you can take your parents' boat out, take your own boat out, but you know, you are responsible for the lives of the people in the vehicle, whether it be a boat or a car that you're there with. And that's the responsibility level you have to approach it with, and that's the way law enforcement will approach it. 
a lot of people don't realize that the sun just the way that the water moves i mean it is different alcohol will hit you faster so sometimes legal limit i know we're talking about being under the age of 21 and so there's you know that's a different standard of a bac which is the blood alcohol content level but even over the age of 21 something to definitely realize is alcohol can affect you differently in different situations and one of them is dehydration sun exposure and also being on the water it can hit you differently and it's something to be very cognizant of whether or not you're on lake the ozarks or table rock lake or any of the other lakes and rivers we have here in our state and i'm guessing that same scenario kind of applies that we talked about you're catching a ride to a party you're you might not be partaking but other people in the vehicle have or have open containers I'm guessing the same thing happens on a boat. Yes, it, it definitely does, um, especially when we're talking about being under the age of 21. I mean, you've got to think about the context of what the law enforcement officer is going to find, especially to Missouri State Patrol is what polices a lot of our waterways here, especially Lake of the Ozarks, since it's such a major area. And you got to think about what this police officer is going to be thinking if he sees a boat full of 18-year-olds and somehow you at all have a container or a cooler of any type of alcohol you know who got it for you what are you doing all of you are going to get tickets for that if there's one or two 21 year olds but then you know there's some also some 18 year olds yeah they're going to be looking at you know you're providing this to them and, you know, everyone's probably going to get a breathalyzer test at that point just to see you know are you doing this and as a 21 year old being around 18 year olds you know you have to be cognizant of the fact that that's something that could get you in trouble for that i will also say the difference whether or not it's a legal standard of just the implication of it is voting is a very recreational privilege. Driving is a privilege. I think that's something a lot of people, especially when they turn 18 or a lot of people even now don't even recognize is driving is a privilege. And when you are on the waterways in this situation, you are kind of held to a different standard because it is a privilege to be out there. You are out there to have fun and to enjoy the waterways, not to create a problem for society where you're creating a danger for other families or for other boaters. So that's the way that it really gets looked at is, are you abusing this privilege that you have in this capacity? If you're able to to drive and, and, and do things that we've been talking about here, it brings to mind whether what your responsibilities are as an 18 year old to have insurance or to get insurance, or are you still carried under your parents' policy? How does that work? The standard in, in the state of Missouri, and this is most states, but we'll talk about ours specifically, is that if you put a vehicle on the road, you are responsible to hold at least liability insurance. Liability insurance is basic coverage that says that if you cause or injure another uh, vehicle or party while you're operating the vehicle, then their damages will be covered up to a policy limit. Uh, just because you turn 18, ideally, if you can stay on your parents' or a loved one's policy, then that's ideal. But if not, then you are responsible to get insurance coverage, liability insurance coverage yourself. And now the consequences of not having insurance in Missouri are, 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 are kind of grave for one's driving record. Because as Danielle just mentioned and stated that Driving is a privilege and is one that the state will suspend or revoke if it's not carried out. And so if you're found of driving without insurance, then you're subject to four points against your driving privilege. And in Missouri, if you get eight points within 18 months, your license is automatically suspended for 30 days. If you get 12 points within a year, then your license is automatically revoked for one year. And so just think, if you get pulled over without insurance, violating a stop sign, which is two points, another moving violation, you're already possibly facing suspension. So those add up pretty quickly. 
To piggyback off of what Deshaun just said, something that I think is a big myth that I had to learn as a practicing lawyer is the refusal to take the breathalyzer test on a DUI. I think it's a big rumor that, you know, if you refuse to take this test and they you have longer to go down to the station and do these different things, but that actual refusal is an actionable thing in itself. Um, it comes from the administrative side of getting your licenses, as Deshaun was mentioning with the point system, it is an effective one year you cannot drive. There's different rules about it. So even though there still may be an underlying DUI charge, there's going to be an administrative agency follow up through that for that chemical breathalyzer refusal. That kind of touches on the idea of something that you mentioned early on, police encounters. As an 18-year-old, I'm guessing that your parents are no longer going to be contacted or informed. You're no longer part of maybe Missouri's juvenile law system, which we've done another episode on. What should you know as a young adult in police encounters? How should you act? What is the responsible way that is going to benefit both you and law enforcement in carrying out their responsibilities? Yeah, that's good. I I remember back to being an an 18 year old and just being a a young person. I always thought that uh, law enforcement were like these mystical like people, police officers were these mystical people. And like I had to be on like P's and Q's whenever I I was around them, you know, type thing. As you get older, you kind of realize that's not exactly the case. I think there's a misconception that if you're pulled over or have an encounter with law enforcement, then that you're that automatically means you did something wrong or you're guilty, uh, which is not the case. What an 18 year old should remember when they're interacting with uh, law enforcement is really treat with respect, listen, and go from there. As far as rights go, one doesn't have to speak with a law enforcement officer. If you don't want to talk with the police officer, you don't have to. One has rights. So you can reserve your rights not to say anything until the encounter is over. Listen, follow directions, uh, and go from there. Even if that doesn't result in an arrest, or it does, at least you preserve your silence. I'd also offer as well that I think a lot of folks get kind of animated and emotional when they're interacting with law enforcement, and I think that only prolongs encounters. And so the best advice I can give is to remain calm. Usually in the moment, even if you're right, in the moment, that's not going to be received. There's always an opportunity after to follow up if you feel that you've been mistreated in any kind of way during the encounter with the law enforcement. Claire, you did mention too, you alluded to this. Once you turn 18, you're legally an adult in the state of Missouri. So your parents can't come and pick you up automatically. They are not accountable for your actions in that way. And legally, you are an adult. And with that comes, again, Daniel's theme of, you know, that milestone comes with a great responsibility. And that's something to be mindful of, always. Do you run into situations where young people, when they get to be 18, run into debt problems? Do they get careless with their credit cards, not realizing that now at 18, they're the ones responsible for paying the credit card and can't pass it off to mom and dad? So using credit, let's start fundamentally. So credit is someone agreeing to extend you money now that you don't have in exchange for you paying them back later, plus some. The plus some is interest. And so for the purpose of illustration, I wanna buy a $100 pair of shoes. I only have $50. I go to a creditor and ask them to loan me $50. In exchange for that $50, they say, well, I want you to pay me 10% of that $50 over time when you pay me back, because I don't have my $50 right now. And so you go from owing $50 to $55. Right, that $5 is that 10% interest. 
Now, what young people forget, and frankly, a lot of folks about using credit, uh, is that you have to meet your debt obligations and that all that information is tracked. Your entire life as a consumer really starts when you turn 18. And you want to be intentional about what you're asking for and why you're asking for to the extent of that credit because it becomes debt. And it's something that's, that has to be stayed on top of. Another thing that I've seen happen that, again, this is more than just being 18, but just in general, less hard lessons learned I've seen from friends of mine growing up is another thing in terms of credit is being cognizant of when you sign as a co-signer for something, whether it be a car or some type of personal loan, you know, that can drastically impact your credit down the road if they fail to meet their payments. So for example, I've seen where, say you're 19 years old, you're with a boyfriend, girlfriend, you co-sign together on a car, well, then you break up. It's really hard to get yourself off that loan. You know, they essentially have to go in and sign you off of it. And it's hard, even for me as a lawyer, it's going to cost you money for me to go through the legal process of getting you off of that. So I know we're going to talk about marriage and relationships down here in a few minutes. And that's definitely one of the things to consider. But when it comes to credit is, you know, like Deshaun mentioned, you know, it will follow you. That's when it starts. I'm honestly, personally, a huge advocate of not using credit, uh, especially when you're younger. I know it's a trade-off. A lot of places require it. So you kind of need to establish that. You can do very simple things that can help you do that without overextending yourself. The best advice that's not legal advice, I can say when you turn 18 is to go meet with a financial advisor and start putting away money in a very responsible way to save for your future and be able to meet with professionals in the financial industry to help you get a game plan, whether or not you're going to college, whether or not you're, you're not going to college, you know, you can definitely set yourself up for success in ways when you're 18 that now looking back, I wish, oh my gosh, if I had been giving my guy $100 a month for the past 10 years, instead of just starting now, you know, where would I be financially? That's something to be cognizant of is even just adding any type of financial responsibility, what that could mean down the road. Sometimes though, if you have to apply for credit, that's because you're not earning enough money to be able to just flat out buy something. Do, do labor laws change when you're 18 in terms of the hours you can work or the places you can work or things like that? Because I know we have child labor laws that limit how many hours and in what kind of establishments you can work in when you're 17. What kind of a major change is it in terms of employment and salary and things like that when you turn 18? There's no cap on you know how many hours that you can work once you turn 18. I think that's the most significant shift. You can work more and they will take more out of your checks and, and all those great things. You're part of the great game at that point. But, you know, with having more resources comes more responsibility. I, I think when I was that age, you know, not having a lot of expenses, but also having really some of my first jobs, it's like I want to spend this money on frivolous things, clothes and shoes and things like that. And like Daniel just said, you know, at the beginning, you need to develop a plan for how you're going to use your resources. I will say, too, something I learned later as an adult, definitely not when I turned 18, but there is this theory about being salaried versus hourly. And that definitely changes when you're 18. That's an option that some employers will give you is, you know, do you want to be an exempt or non-exempt employee? And definitely look into the implications of it. Ask the questions of your employer. You know, this is a lot of times as a young person, I remember having the perspective of, oh my gosh, I just want a job. I just need you to want me and I just want to start earning money. But definitely take into consideration that when you start talking about full-time employment, it will take up the majority of your life. And it's a very important relationship that you as an employee have rights and you have, 
you should be asking tough questions of your employer, such as, you know, how many hours am I going to be expected to work? Because if you are on salary, that changes that 40 hour work week requirement. You know, if you're going to be putting in 50 hours a week or even more, it might be in your benefit to try and negotiate that to be an hourly employee. I think the hourly employment gets a stigma in society, which it definitely should not. It is something that you should counter back with to your employer and say, no, you know, I deserve to make time and a half of overtime if you're going to be taking up more than 40 hours of my week. And that's something that I don't think a lot of young people or even, I mean, let's be honest, even people throughout all of employment, it's it's a struggle to kind of feel like you're fighting back your employer, but you have that entitlement and you should feel empowered to have that conversation with your employer because it's a working relationship, which is two parties, not just one. As someone who's moving into this working full-time mode, are there benefits and or responsibilities that employers have to me as the employee, whether that be providing things such as healthcare benefits or paid time off, whether that be for sick leave or vacation, or is that up to me as an employee to negotiate with my employer? Twofold. You know, there are labor, extensive labor laws they guarantee, you know, certain kind of protections and fundamental things that 18 year olds may be subject to. But I think that that distinction that Danielle pointed out, hourly versus salary, really kind of guides some of the responsibilities and benefits that the employer may provide. Most employment settings, if you're an hourly employee, then you may not have the benefit of health care plans and certain retirement plans and other benefits that salary employees usually have with their employers. But as far as medical leave and things like that go, those are pretty universal and set by labor standards by state and federal governments. And so there are some of those protections there. I think most, the first thing that comes to mind, I think about FLMA, which is the Family Medical and Leave Act, and just pretty much fundamentally stands for that if you need to take off work related to personal or family medical emergency, that your job can't be terminated. Your position can't be terminated for a certain period of time, provided that you're complying with some of the statutory requirements of the act and pretty much that you're communicating with your employer and that it's a covered reason for missing the work. So that's that's something that immediately comes to mind. And I just want to restate what Danielle was just saying about asking questions. And I think that's something as a young person uh, that I was more timid to do, which I thought that, you know, I'm a new adult and all these other adults, I thought their age equaled experience and knowledge, and that's not always the case. And so advocating for yourself is very important in all contexts. And so asking those questions and having those difficult conversations is necessary. Talking about FMLA, I will say as someone who just recently used FMLA, so I had a baby last year and I used my FMLA leave essentially, but that's something a lot of people don't realize too. And I've had clients that are employers that I've had to advise on this is FMLA only applies if you have more than 50 employees. So Take, for example, here at Lake of the Ozarks, we have a lot of small businesses, and that's not a protection that you have if you have a small business. They consider that too much of a burden on the employer at that point. Now, whether or not that's right or wrong, or we can get into debates about that or anything, but it's also unpaid. That's something else. you know. So if you work for a company that has over 50 employees, you are entitled to the 12 weeks of FMLA, but it is unpaid. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, 12 weeks of unpaid, it, it you feel it. Now, I was very fortunate that my small business did allow FMLA and worked with me and did those things. But I will tell you that it sounds like the safeguard, but it's the other side of the coin to look at and say, you know, that's something you have to budget for. 
And it doesn't just cover having a baby or different things like that. You know, adoptions covered. I think, you know, if you have a sick parent, there are a lot of ways that you can pull out it. A lot of it is a great protection, but that's something to be cognizant of is that there are some caveats in there. So turning 18, I'm going to have to start paying for a lot of things. It sounds like car insurance on my own, possibly housing and all my food, medical, other things. Are there changes that have happened in the law or protections in the law that allow me as an 18 year old to still take advantage of maybe medical insurance options or car insurance options through my family so that maybe the hit of all these new found expenses of being an adult aren't so overwhelming and all at once. If one has the benefit of having a family unit and the family has prior relationships with insurers and creditors and things like that, then maybe, yeah, your family can help you walk into that. I didn't have the benefit of that growing up. And so when I was doing these things on my own, which I did, when I was doing these things on my own, I really just did research about how to interact with these different systems. I kind of already knew at the time, though, not to put my name on anything that I didn't understand. Legally, once you put your name on something that, generally speaking, you're bound to that, absent some other things I won't get into right now that will require a court and jury to decide. But on balance, if you put your name on something, then you're bound to it. And it's assumed that you understand everything in there. And so if you sign an agreement and you didn't read all the the words and you find out that you were agreeing to something else, it may be hard for you to get out of that obligation. So it sounds like a recommendation is, one, to read everything before you sign it. I know that when I was a young adult, I might get presented with these scenarios or if you're shopping, they might say, oh, you get this 25% discount today if you sign up for this. Or, hey, this is going to be your insurance policy. This is what we discussed. Just sign here. And they don't necessarily always encourage you to read it. Is it okay to say, can I actually just get a printout and take this with me and read it and then get back to you? Is there any urgency that has to be done with these things? That's really a great question. I'm so like, the answer is absolutely no. There's no urgency in that. If you feel that you're being pressured to uh, sign an agreement or get locked into something, if they can't wait till tomorrow, then it's probably not for you. And so absolutely, again, being a self-advocate and saying, listen, you know, I want to take time to digest this before I agree to it. It's something that you're well within your rights to do and entitled to do. And anyone that's doing good, savvy business is going to totally understand that and, and not apply pressure at the point of sale. And again, that kind of makes me think of this. There's something called the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act. It really guides what retailers and, and businesses can and can't do to consumers. And so there are a lot of guidance and, and legal protections for consumers against unfair business practices. That's something to keep in mind, too. As we've gone along this morning and talked about all these various issues, it's occurred to me, I wonder how well do we prepare our young people to be 18? Uh, all of a sudden, they're 18, and, and now we're talking about you have all this stuff on your shoulders now. But I don't, of course, it's been a while since I've been in school, so I don't know if there's any high school courses that people take before they graduate that says this is the real world you're going to walk into when you're 18 or whether there's program where the parents have an obligation to tell their kids what they're about to get into. This is strictly subjective, I know, but do you think we really prepare our kids to be 18 very well? Well, Bob, I think you bring up 
some really good points. Whether or not, I think this is a very subjective term. I know I grew up in a household full of teachers. My whole family is teachers. I have lots of friends who are in the education system. And it's a big debate on whether or not parents versus teachers should be teaching these things. I don't think, I'm going to say it, we don't pay our teachers enough. And whether or not they should then take on additional roles of going into stepping over some quote boundaries of then parenting these kids. You know, we're talking about 14 to 18 year olds. Does that come from home? You know, it's almost the chicken and the egg. You know, which one should they be getting it? Whose responsibility is it? I think personally it falls to the parents. But if you have parents that haven't been taught that correctly or aren't managing their finances correctly, then we're talking about kids that don't have the resources to be able to know that. And that's where that comes into a whole society play of privilege versus non-privilege and going into socioeconomic differences and different types of school districts and how we're paying these teachers. And it's a whole problem. It's a host of problems, but I don't want to by any means try and come in and say, you know, we don't prepare kids to be adults enough. Well, that's a whole society problem. That's not our teacher's fault. That's not our parents' fault. It's not a lateral answer. It's a societal, we don't value teaching our kids enough to prepare them to go into the harsh realities of some of these situations. I'd offer as well that I think the internet and social media has really muddied muddied what it means to be a young adult in this day and time. And so, for example, for reference, Instagram has been out since, since 2012, Facebook a couple years prior to that, and now we have TikTok. And so there's so many voices, right? And there's so many influences. It's almost they're raising each other. It's an echo chamber. And so to have all of these different influences and to be a young person and not necessarily have the benefit of experience to be able to discern what content is worth taking in and what content is worth discarding, in addition to everything else that's going on at that stage in life, I think it's becoming kind of difficult to have a consistent experience as a young person. Do you think because of the scenarios that we've just discussed that is that what has spurred the young lawyer section of the Missouri Bar to continue producing and educating young adults on the legal challenges of, of turning 18? I know that this started off as a print brochure or guide a few decades ago, and now the council has turned it into a website at showmerights.org, and you guys are taking time today to talk about this on the podcast. Do you think, is that the impetus for your involvement in, in projects like this? I would say yes. Knowledge is a burden, but it's also like our key to to really being on a level playing field. And so if we can, you know, make the law which is seems kind of mystical and out of reach for folks who don't practice and work in the space, if we can make it more digestible and accessible, I think that's gonna have a better benefit for society generally. And I think that's why we do this work. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And again, it kind of goes back to my with great power comes responsibility. And, you know, I know for myself, children is a huge uh, issues for children, whether or not it be, I mean, gosh, you could name hundreds, if not thousands of issues that parents and families and children face in our society. And for me, this is just a very easy way, should I say, to be able to share, you know, I forget how much just not being 18 anymore and having more experience. I will not say how many years of experience I have over being 18, but, um, you know, a little bit more. And just also going through law school and all of those different things and being able to just kind of explain that, digest it, break it down, whether it be for someone who's 15, 18 or 25, just to be able to say, hey, cool fact, you know, like I took a consumer protection class in law school, you know, kind of going back to what Bob said about education, you know, why was that not a course in high school? I wish it would have been. 
But again, the resources of who's going to teach it and do those things. But for me, this is an advocate area. And I know a lot of lawyers that are our age or even older that feel passionate now about trying to kind of break down that barrier that seems like the lawyers versus non-lawyers and just saying, no, we're people. Like we have these experiences and we want to break it down and share it with whoever we can. Well, and let's face it, they're just things that you learn just by living. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you learn you learn the law. Sometimes you learn them easily. Sometimes you learn the hard way. Mm-hmm. But just learning how to be on your own right. is something that you grow into. So that's, uh, that's not something I know that you can teach specifically well. So you're not going to start up an adulting 101 class? Is that what you're saying? I might. Who knows? I'd pay for class for what it's worth. I think fondly, (laughs) but also embarrassingly think back to my uh, late teens. And I think of how love and loss seemed so all-consuming at that point in my life. (laughs) What happens in relationships? Like at 18, I'm guessing your parents, other than just sharing their opinions, don't really have a say in who you have relationships with, who you hang out with, those types of things. What what risks and or rewards exist there when you turn 18? Yeah, so that's a really good point that, and every family's different too. You know, you say they don't have a right or whatever. I know that there are lots of parents that still kind of have that parental figure in your life. But in general, when we're speaking about what you're, I will say, we talked earlier about the difference between a right and a privilege. Marriage is a right. That's something that is not a privilege. It's not something that someone can take away. And you have that right when you turn 18. Now, whether or not you should exercise that at 18 as a family law lawyer, I will tell you the answer for me is probably always no. Um, with marriage, I, that comes a lot. There, There's a whole host of other things that have long-term implications when you decide to get married. But that is something that you have the availability to do. You do not need your parents to sign off on anything. You don't need their consent. You can go down to the courthouse. You can schedule your own ceremony. Another thing that's kind of a fun wedding fact is you can get married in a courthouse. There's the religious component of it, which whatever religion you practice. And then there's also the state of Missouri getting, you have to get a license to get married. You have to wait three days. You have to apply for it and it's registered. You then have to register that license in whatever county you were married in. And then it becomes a formal legal union, which has a lot more implications than just, we love each other so much. And we want to spend the rest of our lives together. There's a lot of things to consider before you get married, for sure. How does the law regard relationships differently when one person is 18 and the other is 17, as opposed to when you're 17 and the other person is 16? How does the law change under those kinds of circumstances? So the age of consent in Missouri is 17. I think a common misconception is that if, if you're 18 and like your partner's 16 or something like that, then like because you're so close in age, then you're not subject to uh, you know those kind of laws, and that's just not the case. Again, being mindful of that age of consent. Again, a minor is anyone under the age of 17 legally. I think folks get in trouble with having relationships with minors, even though they don't, they, they themselves still are in a mindset of being a minor. So there's something to be mindful of. So just to put it in perspective, we're talking like this scenario is maybe a senior in high school who just turned 18 dating someone who's likely a sophomore in high school. So that could have legal implications for you. Correct. Yep. If you're dating a sophomore as a senior, you're 18, that sophomore is under the age of 17. If you all are sexually active together, then then that is illegal. 
Yeah, I don't think it's actually not much of a gray area. I know it seems like it yeah. because you're all in high school together, but no, it's not. The law does not. Right. The law does not have gray areas when it comes to things like that. And to be clear and to reiterate, when I say the age of consent, this is what it means. It means that legally, even if someone tells you, yes, yes, I want to engage in a sexual act with you, if they are under the age of 17, they legally cannot say yes. So their, their yes is even a no. That's what that means. Yeah. Minors don't have the ability to consent. So if you're under the age of 18, it's legally a presumption that we have a term of art called a legal presumption. And we presume in the law that if you are a minor, you do not have the capacity to consent, meaning you don't have the mental capacity. It's why contracts don't hold up. It's why you can't enter your own lease agreements, all of these different things, buying a car. But it's also entering into, you know, a sexual relationship that is a consent and it is deemed a no until you have the capacity to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. I know a good way to kind of break it down. It sounds harsh, but it's the same way, you know, we kind of fall into some gray areas when intoxicated with consent. Well, think about it as the mental capacity is not there. That is the way the law views it. And we have those laws to protect children. And you don't think of yourself as a child at the age of 16 or 15, but you are. And we have to have those protections because if we don't have a distinguishing line drawn in the sand, we talk about, okay, well, senior to a sophomore or a freshman, well, what about if he was 40 or she was 40 or 30 or 20? You know, we have to draw the line and it has to be at 18. So the laws are there for good reasons and it is there ultimately to protect children. I remember when I was a reporter covering the legislature, there was discussion about there was a confusion in the law between 17 and 18 of some kind. I don't remember what the confusion was and how that was straightened out, but we've used numbers in the last few answers of 17, 18, 16. Okay, is there a hard line now that says 18, you're an adult, below 18, you're not? Certainly as it relates to consent, anyone under the age of 17 cannot give consent. That's the law. If you're 18, you're no longer a minor. And so, as Daniel was saying, you've entered into all those kinds of agreements because now you, you're deemed to have capacity under the law. Yeah, I would say whether or not the distinguishing between 17 and 18, I think, honestly, if you're getting yourself into a situation that you have to question that, you need right. to seek legal advice. I don't want to come out with a blanket policy to say that, you know, if you're 17 right now and you think you might be in a situation that gives you that spine tingling mm-hmm. feeling in your arms or give you those goosebumps or there's something in the back of your head going, I don't know about this. I would definitely, you know, it's worth the money if you have to hire for a consultation. If not, there are lawyers that will do free consultation. There are lots of available resources online for free legal advice too. I know Deshaun and I both volunteer our time answering those questions online to the public as well. And I would seek legal advice in your specific situation to get Mm -hmm. to know the specific law and whatever area that may be in. Have you run into very many issues and very many problems where parents say, okay, you're 18 now, get out of the house. You're an adult. We don't need to support you anymore. Leave. Yeah, I would say in my capacity and kind of more of a the civil side of things, I deal with parenting plans and family law issues a lot. Obviously, it's it's a major part of my practice. I will say one of the things that extends past 18, it can extend past 18 is child support. And that's something to be cognizant of that, you know, if you have a by law, you are not deemed emancipated until you are 18. Or if you continue into higher education, it extends to the age of 21. So if you have a parent that's receiving that child support, that support is for you. So you, there are some rights there. And it's something to be cognizant of. I would say I'm not going to give blanket legal advice in, in interpreting those. I would say definitely 
contact a lawyer who specializes in family law. If you are in that situation of you're 19 and you know one of your parents is paying child support, they've kicked you out of the house or something like that. If nothing else, just to get it to where one parent's not paying it to the other. And unfortunately, you know, parents don't have an obligation to support you after you are emancipated. So if you're if you're still in college and there's been child support payments made up to now, can you get that the law changed or can you get a court hearing and have the payments made directly to you instead of to what had been your custodial parent? You can. It's a hard process. Everything in family law is a hard process. Family law is an area unlike criminal law or unlike statute based and things. We do have statutes for family law, but everything that you do in family law is a battle and you have to get it signed off by a judge. The best way, and this kind of ties back into, you know, the issues when you get married, you have children together. If you have a child with someone, you are going to forever be connected to that other person, period dot. You will be, whether or not your your kid is emancipated after 18 years, you're going to be at each other's, what your kid's weddings, graduations, you name it. That is a very serious undertaking is having children. And with that comes the obligation of support to your child. The law in Missouri is based, all of our family law statutes are based off of the best interest of the child. Now, that being said, (laughs) with that, so maybe it is in your best interest, but you as a child are then having to hire a lawyer to advocate for yourself versus typically what you see is you're seeing one parent represented versus the other parent represented in your you know, going after this into a court system. And I have had clients that have come in and say, listen, I am now providing all of this to my children. I want to cease payments to child support payments to the other party and just pay them directly to the child. Well, one of the standards you have to show is that there have been substantial and continuing changes in circumstances because you now are dealing with changing a court order. So this is If you have a court order for child support, you have to show the court that there is something continuing, ongoing, and substantial in the child's best interest to make it to where you need to change that. So there is a legal standard to that. And you don't have to hire a lawyer in family law, but it's highly encouraged to hire someone who knows how to make those arguments and how to plead everything correctly and how to show the court that, yes, it is actually in the child's best interest to pay this directly to the child or to have this going on, or, you know, maybe the time has changed. I think that's something a lot of people don't realize is child support is based on how much time each parent spends with the child. And you get credit for time that you have with your child and it'll reduce or increase that payment accordingly. I know that before you turn 18, your parents or your guardian, whoever that may be, can make medical decisions for you. And I think at that young age, that young adult age, we oftentimes think of ourselves as invincible. We don't anticipate bad things happening. But would you recommend that when you turn 18, that maybe you complete the durable power of attorney for healthcare form that the Missouri Bar provides or one that you obtain through an attorney to identify who you want to make decisions for you if you should become incapacitated? You know, of course, I think obviously that's a very personal decision and it depends on what your family relationship is at that time. But definitely knowing that that's an option is something I didn't know was a thing when I turned 18. And just being able to say, I want my mom to decide or I want my dad to decide or maybe you want your aunt to decide or your sister or something like that. Um, I would always recommend advocating for yourself and what you want and having those conversations for sure. Absolutely. And just as a general matter, once you turn 18, I think it's just important to have all your information and ducks in a row generally for yourself. So, for example, like I've known people in life who, who didn't know their social security numbers or, you know, had to reach out to the parents to get the card and, and you're, you know, 
24, <laughs> things like that. So just, again, being personally responsible and knowing that information for yourself so that you can go out and do a lot of those things that you can do when you turn 18, like sign a contract, change your name, buy a pet, open a brokerage account, register for selective service, join the military, things like that. And those are things that you that you need to have fundamental information about yourself to do. In the healthcare context, always having a designated emergency contact is just a good best practice on a personal level, whether that be you know, a family member or another loved one or someone you care about, but just someone that you can rely on. You should always have an emergency contact in any setting. And as you start filling out formal employment applications and other things like that, usually that'll be a box. And so that's just something to think of for yourself to have an emergency contact. You mentioned contracts. I was very excited the first time I got my first apartment. I started grad school, but it was like, cool, I'm sitting up home. I'm trying to like get my own dishes and bought some pans and find a sofa. And to me, it was a very exciting point to, to have that place to call my own. What does contractual relationships look like, whether it's with a landlord, whether it's leasing, transportation means? What are your best tips for someone who is entering these types of agreements for the first time? So I will definitely answer some questions. I handle a lot of landlord-tenant actions in my in my practice, and I have represented both landlords and tenants. And I will tell you again, it goes back to that employment situation where this is a relationship between two people. I think, especially when you're talking about your first apartment. I remember my first apartment. It's the same way. I was so excited, and I just felt like, you know, with the leases, you know, you're like, well, this is what the lease is. This is what it is, and that's not true. Um, contracts are something that are to be negotiated. They can be. Now you do run the risk, you know, a landlord ultimately, they don't have to make the changes, but you are allowed to request to make changes to your lease. That's something that a lot of people don't realize is this is an initial offer of a contract and you don't have to sign it and you don't have to accept it as is. You can request to make amendments and changes to it. Now, I will tell you whether or not your landlord works with you or not, who knows? There are some common provisions. I think a lot of people don't realize that tenants have inherent rights. You have rights as a tenant to have a, oh, and I mess this word up every time. I have never been able to say it. Uh, Habitability. There is, it's the inherent right of habitability, meaning your landlord has to make sure that there's windows and that there's doors and that there's a roof over your head if they're going to lease to you. Um, Those are rights that you have as a tenant. Um, Another thing that you have the right to do is you have the right to notice. So your contract, which is your lease agreement, when you sign that, I always advocate, especially for landlords, I advocate to have leases, but also for tenants, it protects you in ways that it sounds counterintuitive that you would almost think like, oh, well, if I don't have a lease agreement, I don't have all these rules and all these things. But honestly, it is in your best protection to have a lease agreement, a signed lease agreement that lists out everything that you're responsible for, that the rules, all of those things. It also protects you in terms of when you can be evicted. There are rights that come with these lease agreements. And I notice requirements on evictions is something that, you know, gets landlords and tenants every time. I'm constantly in court arguing whether or not the notice provisions were correct. And that's all done by statute. It's all done by case law and statute. And a good lawyer in that area will know that. A landlord, maybe not necessarily. But if you don't have a lease, for example, you just have at that point, you are defaulted to being on an oral lease, and it goes by how often you're paying rent. So say you've gone into a place and you had 
you had a year lease. You were paying rent on a monthly basis for a year-long lease. I see this all the time. Something happens, you get busy, you don't really pay attention to it, and now all of a sudden, you're living there, it's month 15, and you don't have a lease agreement. The landlord's let it slip, you've let it slip. What happens? And then the landlord changes their mind, or they want to increase your rent payment, or then they want you to sign a lease. What happens and what your rights are? So in that situation you are a month-to-month tenant. You have rolled over 90% of the time. Now, I will say there are exceptions and caveats, and we can kind of wiggle with that sometimes. But for the most part, I mean, a caveat of the it depends lawyer answer. Um, For the most part, at that point, your landlord or you have to give 30 days notice. And that's different too. A lot of people think of 30 days notice being 30 days. So, you know, if I give you notice on the 8th of July, you know, I can kick you out the 8th of August. No, it's 30 days from the next time rent becomes due and owing. So that means if you provide in the middle of the month notice, too bad, you cannot get them out. They do not become a holdover tenant, which is a legal term of art. You don't become a holdover tenant until 30 days after the next time of rent becomes due and owing. So if you owe rent 1st of August, we have 30 days, you have now until September 1. So that's another thing a lot of people don't realize, both landlords and tenants. They come into my office, both sides of it. I've been given this notice, they've told me to leave, or I need this tenant gone, you know, I I need him gone by August 1st. Well, it's July 8th and you gave notice yesterday. I'm sorry, there is nothing that we can do until whatever day. Now I will say your biggest protection as a tenant and the number one question I always ask for both landlords and tenants as clients come into my office is, is the rent paid on time? 100%, if you do not pay your rent, there is nothing I can do for you. That changes the notice requirement. That changes what you're entitled to in terms of how long you have available to stay there. 100%, the statute is written to actually have those cases taken up faster than any other case that we put on the docket. So I can get that set within 20 days and I can get an immediate order of possession that will kick you out that day. So something to be cognizant of. You do not have rights. If you have not paid your rent, that is a different situation. That is a different ballgame. We're in a different, I mean, we're in a different arena at that point. So the number one thing I will always tell people is pay your rent on time. Your lease agreements, that's where you can have provisions for late payments, um, attorney's fees. That's another thing to pay attention to in your lease agreements. A good lease for a landlord will have it included that if they have to take you for any eviction proceedings or anything in there, attorney fees, you'll have to pay them. So that's something to be cognizant of. Now, I don't know if you could banter to have that out as a landlord. (laughs) I wouldn't. I would keep it in there. But another thing is a lot of leases and by statute too is if you're engaging in illegal activities in your apartment, that's something to be very cognizant of. That will break your lease. It will not protect you. You have a broken lease. And if your landlord has to pay a lawyer to go in and essentially evict you through the court system, you will have to pay that. So you're going to be without a place to live and paying attorney's fees and continuing to pay your rent until the day you're evicted. So definitely pay attention to those illegal activities, whatever it may be. You know, we talked about drinking earlier. That's an illegal activity. You host a party as a 21-year-old and you invite a bunch of minors, you could be facing eviction at that point. You're going to be facing criminal charges, but you're also going to be potentially facing a landlord who's going, listen, I don't want underage parties going on here. I don't want this liability. You got to go. And honestly, they're entitled to that. So Definitely something to pay attention to are those extra provisions in those lease agreements and to know that you do have rights, but also that you can put yourself into positions by your own choice to lose your rights. When I was 18, I'm not sure the thought would have ever entered my mind that I needed to hire a lawyer. 
And one reason for that is I didn't have the resources to hire a lawyer. What about the 18-year-old person, or even the 19-year-old person, who has a legal problem, but they don't think of going to lawyers because, number one, they they just can't afford it. So it's not even on their agenda to think about, I'm going to hire somebody to represent me. Is there a, what would we call it, a, a first-timer's low rate? How, how does the legal profession handle situations like this? Yeah, that's a good question. So the first thing that comes to mind is pro bono. The profession does pro bono work, and it's actually something that we encourage. And that's just a fancy way of saying that lawyers take on cases free of charge. I always recommend, like, it doesn't hurt to, closed mouths don't get fed, right? And so if you have an issue, it doesn't hurt to call up a lawyer and just ask, right? Ask, I need advice on this. Or can you point me in the right direction? And more often than not, that'll get you further than just sitting on the inquiry or, or not, you know, inquiring because of it's cost prohibitive. Another thing is there are great legal aid organizations that provide great quality legal representation in the state. In Missouri, the first organization that comes to mind is Legal Services of Missouri. And they have the Eastern and Western uh, offices, and they may have others that I want to speak. And so there are organizations and groups of, of lawyers that, that can help you uh, if you're not able to afford representation, which is, is pretty common and, and it doesn't reflect on anything. Now, again, every fundamentally, everyone has a right to access the legal system. You know, lawyers, fundamentally, we are servants. We serve our clients. We work for our clients, and we work for society as officer of the courts. And so we share our time pretty freely, I'd say, on balance. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think each lawyer, and I think that's something that as the young lawyer section and part of this council and just part of our profession in general, graduating law school, I know pro bono hours were heavily encouraged. And I think, you know, as new generations come into the practice of law, we're trying to improve that kind of stigma of we are advocates. At the end of the day, we advocate for our clients, whoever those clients may be. I know a lot of us are willing to share our knowledge and our time, especially if we know how to do it. Like Deshaun mentioned, there are websites available. For example, both of us volunteer to answer questions and a lot of lawyers can get on there and just donate an hour or two hours of their time. It kind of comes to, you actually do need to hire a lawyer to take something to court. That's different. But some of these, you could just know basic answers of questions to be able to know whether or not you do need to hire someone. So that's a great way that a lot of us can donate our time. I know for me, like different mentor programs that you can get involved in, that's kind of more through the law school system, but that is something that a lot of us will give back to as well. I do know that legal aid does have available options. It depends on what type of case you're wanting, whether or not legal aid provides that service. There's the public defender system, which is a huge, huge resource for so many people in our state. And that only involves criminal law. That's another thing a lot of people don't realize. There's a difference between civil law and criminal law. And criminal law entitles you to a defense attorney. On some things, it's also a gray line. There's different levels of charges that do and do not. um, But they are amazing people. I have friends who are public defenders and are incredible lawyers. There's also, like I said, legal aid, which kind of covers more of the civil side in certain aspects. Trying to think what else there is. There's also, I know I went to UMKC for law school and we host clinics at our law school. And I know we, one of them was like a tax clinic. And if you had a tax law question, you know, law school students would volunteer their time to answer questions because they are taking those, you know, those tax law clinics. And then other lawyers in the area would also donate their time. We had a family law clinic. I remember they had five or six of them. So those are times where you can get lawyers or law school students to help you kind of answer those questions. That website where council members answer 
legal questions is missouri.freelegalanswers.org. Again, that's missouri.freelegalanswers.org. And this is a website you can go to and submit any legal question that you have, and the lawyers on the other side will try to answer those inquiries. That's something that Danielle and I participate in. I just want to give a shout out to you guys for volunteering for that. It's a program that the Missouri Bar partnered with the American Bar Association with several years ago, and Missouri lawyers have volunteered their time. At this point in time, it's at nearly 3,000 total questions have been answered by that Missouri residents have submitted. There are some income qualifications on there. So it's meant for those folks who are either low income or of modest means. And yeah, any non-criminal civil legal question. So covering most of what we've discussed today, it's available for people to go to ask a question. I think you can ask up to three questions a year and get really great insights and advice from licensed lawyers in our state. Anything else that we need to be talking about when it comes to young people in the law today that you can think of? We've covered a lot of ground. Something that immediately comes to mind, again, the advent of the internet and social media and Instagram has really exacerbated a lot of things. Cyberbullying immediately comes to mind, as well as the issue of unlawful dissemination of sexual images. And so in this day and age where there's a lot of more sexual expression going on that's widely shared on the internet and amongst young people, you definitely see scenarios where young people will bully each other and share images and information of the sexual nature. That's completely against the law. In Missouri, there's literally a law against the unlawful dissemination of sexual images. It's actually a class D felony. And so if you're in receipt of a sexual image from anyone, you literally cannot share that with someone else without their express permission. And you're subject to a felony if you do so. And also, it's just kind of evil generally. And so that's something to be mindful of at all stages of life, but especially in in the context of being in high school, uh, being a young person, and growing up with these platforms. And so just because someone shares something with you or they maybe even share it publicly doesn't mean that you can share it with someone else. And you can subject yourself to legal, criminal legal procedures if you do so. I would say the only other thing that you know, we talked about a lot of policies. So when we talk about the law, the law is decided by legislatures. Lawyers don't write laws. Believe it or not, only 10% of our legislature, at least this was the stat I heard when I was going into law school, only 10% of our Missouri state legislature are lawyers. That's a huge implication. That means that lawyers like Deshaun and I, we are implementing and we have to face the back inside of policies that are being written by people that do not work in the system that shows them how to implement this. So I would say tying this back to register to vote. Vote, make your voice count. There are so many resources online to very easily register to vote and start local. It doesn't sound, you know, you focus so much on the big presidential primary things, but your local representation, who's representing, what district, what representative district do you live in? What is your state representative? You can literally just Google, what voting district do I live in? Who's my state representative? Who's my state senator? Who's going to Jeff City for me? And who's advocating for these policies? Do I agree with them? You can see what they're proposing. You can see from all counties, say there's a House bill, pay attention to what's going on in the House and the Senate for Missouri, because that's what's going to be on our governor's desk. And you have the ability to change that and make an impact on that the moment you turn 18. So register. Deshaun mentioned we're online all the time now. It takes 10 minutes to figure it out. Talk to your candidates, go in, make that difference. 
that's what people mean when they say that you can start making a difference at 18 and to register to vote. It is so much more than just big power play federal government issues, which are still very important. But when you start talking about, especially now in the wake of some of the decisions that have come down this summer, the way that we are all going to make change, whether or not you on whatever side of any debates that are going on right now, whatever side you're on, whichever side you want to advocate for, the local campaigns, the, the local officer, they are going to make a difference. Your judges make a difference. Start talking to some lawyers in the area, figure out what judges, you know, my county alone, we have an election coming up for our judges in our area. It matters. It matters a lot to how they're going to implement the policies, how they're going to implement decisions, how they're going to look at cases all the way up the gamut. It's it's your I think it's your civic duty, but it's how you can get involved when you're 18. And it's so easy to register to vote. They give you your card. They mail it to you. You can figure out where you need to go. And all of the candidate information is public and online. And I think that's something to be cognizant of when you turn 18. That That's an exciting part. I feel like we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff today. And so that can be your exciting advocating mission is, you know, I just turned 18 and I'm going to make a difference. And that's how. And you start small and you can vote the whole way up. And I think that's something to be proud of and to act on. Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. When considering the topic of this podcast, the constitutional issue that comes to mind is how we came to provide 18-year-olds the right to vote. This question of a minimum voting age had always been one that had been determined by the states. The prevailing view was that an individual had to be 21 years old to vote. In the 20th century, divisions began to appear among the states. While most states continued to set a minimum requirement of 21 years old, a few began to question whether the age should be 18. In World War II, Senator Jennings Randolph of West Virginia asked, who will say they are old enough to use bullets, but too young to use ballots? In the following decades, a handful of states lowered their voting age to 18. The 1960s intensified this issue as young men were considered old enough to be drafted to put their lives on the lines, but not old enough to vote for the politicians who would make choices about their lives. The 1960s were also a time of youthful involvement in public affairs. These young people saw themselves as old enough to influence public policy and asked, why should they not be able to actually vote for the officials who would make final decisions about policy? In 1970, Congress enacted amendments to the Voting Rights Act. Among the provisions of the act was a dictate that the voting age in all elections, federal as well as state and local, would be 18. States did not respond well to this change. They challenged the constitutionality of this edict, arguing that under our constitutional system, it was for states, not Congress, to set a minimum age. In Oregon versus Mitchell, The Supreme Court addressed this issue of minimum voting age and the power of Congress to set it. Four members of the court believed that Congress had the power to establish a nationwide age of 18. Four members of the court believed that this was a state issue and Congress had no role to play. 
The decision of the court would come down to Justice Hugo Black. His decision was not a simple one. Black's opinion established the precedent that Congress could set an age of 18 in elections for federal office. Black wrote, in short, the Constitution allotted to the states the power to make laws regarding national elections, but provided that if Congress became dissatisfied with the state laws, Congress could alter them. However, Black was not willing to extend this power to state and local elections, writing, No function is more essential to the separate and independent existence of the states than the power to determine within the limits of the Constitution the qualifications of their own voters for state, county, and municipal offices. The court in Oregon versus Mitchell had ruled that Congress could set the minimum voting age for federal elections, but could not for state and local elections. While some applauded Justice Hugo Black for his Solomon-like understanding and application of the intricacies of constitutional theory, many more criticized Black and the court for creating a confused and convoluted set of guidelines for how elections would be conducted. Under the court's decision, it was entirely possible that a 19-year-old who arrived at a polling place would be able to vote for president, senator, and representative, but unable to vote for governor, state legislator, or local judge. This was not the end of the story. If enough people disagreed with the court's decision and wanted a different result, there was an answer. Amendment. The framers of the Constitution created a system in which the people would have the ability to respond to a decision of the Supreme Court with which they disagreed by amending the Constitution. More specifically, if enough people wanted the voting age to be 18, then the Constitution could be amended to make the voting age 18. Now, Amending the Constitution is not easy. The framers did not want it to be easy, but they wanted it to be possible. If two-thirds of both houses of Congress supported this idea, then the amendment would be submitted to the states. If three-fourths of the states agreed with it, then it would become an amendment to the Constitution. To successfully amend the Constitution, it is necessary to assemble a multidimensional array of support. In the case of amending the Constitution to change the voting age, we had this diverse array of coalitions in support. Democrats in Congress supported it, as did Republican President Richard Nixon. Young people supported it, as did older Americans. The one group that might have offered opposition, the states, offered its support when it realized that constructing a voting system that would have different rules for federal and state elections would cost them in the tens of millions of dollars. The Supreme Court handed down its decision in December of 1970. Congress quickly moved to draft and consider a constitutional amendment to change the voting age to 18. Two-thirds of both houses of Congress had approved of the amendment within three months, 
in March of 1971. It was then given to the states. Three-fourths of the state legislatures had approved the amendment in another three months by June of 1971. In a little over six months, the Constitution had been altered to add the 26th Amendment, which stated that the right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. Admittedly, the 26th Amendment was the exception, with the small amount of time it took to become part of the Constitution. However, it shows that amendment is possible, and it demonstrates that the system designed by the framers in which the people would have the final say can, in fact, work. Today, 18-year-olds can vote because the framers envisioned a system in which the Supreme Court would not necessarily have the last word on what the Constitution would say. We've covered a lot of ground today, and I'm sure there are some people out there who have some questions that we didn't reach. We've covered an awful lot. And there are resources that are available, and, and Farrell will talk about them a little bit later on. We do want to thank you guys for being with us on this program. It's been really fascinating to listen to Deshaun and to Danielle talk about what happens when you turn to be 18 years old. So thank you very much, both of you, for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you. There are some resources you might want to check out about turning 18. One that we've mentioned during today's podcast is showmerights.org. That's showmerights.org. That's a website that the content on it is covers a lot of the ground that we discussed today. It's written and updated and maintained by members of the Missouri Bar's Young Lawyer Section Council. And it's there to help answer an array of questions about adulting, whether you're 18 or even older. You can find that information again at showmerights.org. The site provides information that helps you better understand the law because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Nothing further. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2? podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.